what do you do for personal development? I said, it's the hardest question I get. Why? Because the assumption that's built into it is that you do personal development in order to get something. You do personal development so you'll get promoted. You'll do personal development so you get more money. You'll do personal development so girls will like you. Yeah, I said, that's completely um, butt backwards. Um, personal development is the greatest thing you can long for in your life. And all those other things that you think you may like or, or, you, or, or might be nice to have, you know, I like living on my farm, for example, become the byproduct and the trailing indicators of whether you're achieving the goal of personal development. So the most important decision that I made, which has influenced every detail of my life, was deciding to dedicate my life at the ripe old age of 20 to personal development. This week on the podcast, we have August Turek. He is a writer. He is a founder of a few companies, an entrepreneur, um, and a very wise man, to say the least. He talks about how um, your personal development is so incredibly important in today's world in order to be successful in everything you do. Um, we will jump right in. Today on the podcast, we have August. Um, he is a do you want to say what you are? Because you have a lot of titles. Well, my my bio says that I'm a uh, former corporate executive. I actually worked with MTV when it was starting out in 1981. Um, I went, became an entrepreneur, um, started a couple of companies from uh, 2,000 bucks and sold them to uh, seven years later. Um, I'm an author. I have two books on the market. One is called The Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks. A one CEO's quest for meaning and authenticity, and the other one is called Brother John, a monk, a pilgrim, and the purpose of life. I am also the winner of the $100,000 Templeton Prize for my Brother John um, work, uh, book. So, um, and I live on a 75-acre farm outside of Raleigh, North Carolina, and uh, enjoy life. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like it. Sounds like a blast. Um, so do you want to give us a brief story about how you got to where you are and uh, how that has um, kind of changed your ideas of leadership and managing people and coaching people? Well, I would think that the most important question, you know, and I actually wrote an article for this uh, at Forbes that I thought would not be very popular and it turned out being extraordinarily popular. When I was only uh, 19, 20 years old, I became gripped with a, what I would call a spiritual ambition, uh, which I associated with knowing who I was, you know, answering the great questions, who am I, where did I come from, where am I going? And this became something that uh, was a revolution in consciousness, as my old mentor, Lewis Mobley, who ran the IBM Executive School, would say. And it became um, the passion of my life which has never left me and I've done, and you know, I'm now 67. So what's that 40, 40 years or so. And I wrote an article for Forbes and it was called uh, what every leader must know about personal development. And I said that when I get this question a lot on podcasts and stuff, what do you do for personal development? I said, it's the hardest question I get. Why? Because the assumption that's built into it is that you do personal development in order to get something. You do personal development so you'll get promoted. You'll do personal development so you get more money. You'll do personal development so girls will like you. Yeah, I said, that's completely um, butt backwards. Um, 
personal development is the greatest thing you can long for in your life. And all those other things that you think you may like, or, or, you, or, or might be nice to have, you know, I like living on my farm, for example, become the byproduct and the trailing indicators of whether you're achieving the goal of personal development. So the most important decision that I made, which has influenced every detail of my life, was deciding to dedicate my life at the ripe old age of 20 to personal development. And the, um, I use this quote from uh, Dostoevsky, and I mentioned it in the article I wrote for Forbes. Um, I said, it's been on every refrigerator that I've owned or rented since I was 19 years old. And it was written by um, Dostoevsky when he was in a letter to his older brother when he was only 17 years old. And of course, Dostoevsky is the famous Russian author. And he said, man is a mystery. If you spend your entire life trying to puzzle it out, do not say you've wasted your time. I occupy myself with that mystery because I want to be a man. And, um, and as somebody actually came down here from Catholic University, uh, and he, when he came through the door, he said, the first thing I want to see is, do you go to take me to the refrigerator? I want to see if you got that quote on the refrigerator. And I do. And, you know, to me, I mentioned that. I said, what does Dostoevsky say he wants out of life? He doesn't say, even a few years later, he's only 17, I think at 21, he published his first novel and became an instant kind of overnight success. He didn't say, I want to be a writer. He didn't say, I want to be famous. He didn't want to say, I, I want, you know, good looking girls. He didn't say, I want to become rich. He didn't say, none of those things. All he wanted to do was be a man. Yeah, I just, you know, you know, I, I do all these things. I fascinate, I'm, I'm trying to figure out life because I want to be a man. And to me, that resonated so deeply with me when I was only just a young man myself. And I said, that's what I want. And the fact that I have dedicated my life to that lofty, you know, most people think, you know, you become a man because you, uh, uh, you get to be, because your beard starts to grow. <laughs> <clears throat> no, I'm sorry to say, that's not what it's all about. And, um, you know, when you dedicate yourself to something lofty, then everything else has become a, a trailing indicator. Um, the other great, uh, you know, if you have time for two stories, the other great thing would happen to me in 1996 when I smashed my ankle in a skydiving accident and which launched me into a deep depression and everything, which led me to start hanging out with Trappist monks. Uh, I ended up going to a monastery in South Carolina and, um, desperately looking for spiritual solace or something to pull me out of this incredible depression I found myself sinking into. And, uh, and I've been going back to that monastery ever since. And this led to an entire second career for me because it was when I wrote this essay, Brother John, uh, for the Templeton Foundation. It was the first thing I ever wrote in my life. I never had wanted to be a writer. I never thought about being a writer. And some college students I was working with goaded me into entering a contest and uh, I wrote it and the question was what is the purpose of life and 3,500 words or less right the end and I ended up writing this essay in a few days about this monk that I know down at, in, in, uh, at Mepkin Abbey in South Carolina and I ended up winning the $100,000 grand prize. I went up against 10,000 essays from 47 countries and previously published material and professional writers and I won the essay contest. And um, this launched me on a completely uh, new career as a writer. And I became a Forbes contributor and then I wrote a book and blah, 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 blah. But the greatest um, compliment that I got was from my youngest brother. I have six younger brothers and you know, my youngest brother is an attorney. And about 
a year after or seven or eight months after I won this prize, he said that he was talking to uh, another attorney and told him the story about how I'd never wrote anything. And he said, you mean to tell me your brother banged out our essay over the weekend that he never written anything before? He goes up against all these other people and he wants 100,000. And my brother said, yeah, that's pretty much the story. And this guy said, um, your brother's so lucky. And my brother Chris said, no, you don't understand. My brother Augie's been working on that essay for 35 years. Mm. And, um, and it, you know, it brings tears to my eyes just thinking about it now. And that is what I'm always trying to get people to understand. I call it aim past the target. If you aim at developing yourself to be the best human being you possibly can be, and if you make that the focus of your life, then all, you know, you know, I don't care whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian or you're religious or you're not religious, but there's a saying in the Christian religion, seek first the kingdom of heaven and everything else takes care of itself. And I'm saying seek first the kingdom of self-development or self-transcendence or personal growth or spirituality, name it what you want. And everything takes care of itself. I never wanted to be a writer. I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. I never wanted, you know, I didn't want to, I never set out to work for MTV. Everything, I never set out to meet this guy, Lou Mobley, who was the founder of the IBM Executive School. These things just happened to me. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. I can appreciate so, that a lot. Um, I guess then, so like what struggles did, I mean, there's so much struggle in that personal development and all of that, but can you just name a few of what those struggles were and how you got through them through um, a mindset change or? Well, to me, the greatest struggle, you know, I speak a lot and it's interesting, you know, people, the biggest problem is fear. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you really dedicate yourself to, um, to authentically to self-development, it sends you out into the quote unquote wilderness. Uh, people don't understand what you're doing or why you're doing it. You make decisions that don't seem to make sense to other people. Um, the, you know, people would even something simple, people would come to my office when I had my own company to interview or for vendors or whoever, I was the CEO and, and I'd come into, they'd be there sitting there 10 minutes or five minutes while I was, you know, going to the bathroom or something, I'd come into the meeting and they would say, I can't help but start out by saying, you know, look at your bookshelf. I started looking at your bookshelf, expecting to see good to great and all these business books. And all I see is, is Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and, and Kierkegaard and philosophers and, and religious stuff, you know, uh, you know, and um, a lot of times that ends up becoming, um, you know, you know, can tactically, at least it can, it can be a disadvantage. I'll tell you a quick story is that, and I mentioned this in my book, Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks, is that I, I gave some speeches at North Carolina State University in the late 80s. And, um, and actually, they were called Five Years with a Zen Master, which is a whole other, it's their story of me, uh, the work that I did with a Zen teacher when I came out of college. And the kids loved it. And four of these kids came up to me and they said, listen, we'd like to know more about all this stuff that you've been doing. And how about if, uh, if you help us out? And I said, okay, I said, organize, get, your, get yourself into a student organization, which will allow you to get a room. And then I will volunteer to come over on a Thursday nights. He said, I'll spend a couple hours once a week and we'll talk about this stuff and see if I can help you out. Coaching, basically, free coaching for college students. And so they did it. And, no, about, and I wasn't working at the time. I was between gigs. And uh, I get a call from a good friend of mine from the, old, from the cable business. And he's Joe, his name's Joe Tossig, not that it matters. And he says, 
uh, Augie, is that the greatest thing in the world? He said, I've gotten $150 million and we're going to take United Press International, the old uh, competitor of the Associated Press, and we're going to take it out of bankruptcy and we're going to turn it around. He said, and I'm putting the band back together. Gary Newbert and Pat Grotto, all these guys that I knew, all my buddies. <clears throat> he said, I want you to be executive vice president. He said, and you're going to have make it half a million dollars a year and you're going to get the company car and all this kind of stuff. But the only one thing is you're going to have to leave Raleigh and move to North uh, to Washington, D.C. That's where we're headquartered. And I said, Joe, I'd love to do it. It sounds like a gas, you know, um, but uh, I can't do it. I can't move. And they said, why? And I said, because I just promised these four kids that I would coach them on Thursday nights. He said, you mean to tell me you're going to turn down the job opportunity of a lifetime for four snot nosed kids you just met? Um, and I said, uh, I said, Joe, I got a better idea. Why don't we move United Press International to Raleigh? And he said, Molly will never go. He said, oh, the first thing he said to me was, why don't you just come up, whatever it is you do, why don't you do it here in, in uh, Washington, D.C.? We got American University, we got Maryland, we got Catholic University, we've got Georgetown, we've got all America, but all these schools. Do whatever the hell it is you're doing, do it up here. And I said, why don't you move the company down here? And he said, Molly will never go for it. That's his wife. And I said, oh, there's plenty of girls down here. Um, but we laughed about it and we hung up. And I actually, you know, but believe me, I didn't hang up in a good mood. <laughs> I, knew, either. <laughs> I knew what I had just done. And I knew that these four kids would probably be gone. And, you know, once they heard my good, um, a couple of weeks, once the novelty wore off after a couple of weeks, you know, you know, that, that would be the end of it. And not only that, but the word got around that, um, that, that I was kind of a spiritual nut. And, but the two things that came out of that, so I felt like as if I'd just taken my resume and I had a wonderful resume. I just take it out into the behind the house and put a bullet in its head for four college kids. Mm -hmm. But my first teacher told me, you know, a man is only as good as his word. And you put your spiritual priorities first. And, and these kids I'd given them my word and they represented my spiritual priorities to me at the time. So I did it. Now, let me tell you what happened. Two things happened. Number one, because my spiritual, because my career kind of went, you know, kablooey, is the reason why I became an entrepreneur. And I sold my businesses seven years later for, that I started for 2,500 bucks for millions of dollars and then to an Israeli company. And then a couple years later, the combined company was flipped to BMC Software for 150 million in cash. So the best thing that ever happened, meanwhile, UPI went broke a couple of years later, again. And Joe Tossig, unfortunately, he's still a friend of mine. God bless him. And I loved his wife, but his wife divorced him. So he lost Molly and the company. I ended up being forced to become an entrepreneur, which is the best, one of the greatest things I ever did. Meanwhile, of those four students back in 1986, one of them hung around by the name of George Bueller. And in 2004, when I was trying to write this essay, because these kids had goaded me into it and I was getting nowhere, he happened to stop by and asked me how it's going. I said, I'm getting nowhere and I only have like three days left till the deadline. He said, why don't you just write up that story about Brother John at the monastery that you're always telling people about? And that's where I got the inspiration to write the story that became the $100,000 winner that led to me becoming, having, a business, having a writing career. So the best decision that I ever made was giving up, was, was telling. Now, when I took anybody that I told, especially my father, 
back then. You're nuts. You're crazy. That's the stupidest thing you ever did. Everybody. And, and also the sense of loneliness is, is pervasive because you don't even bother trying to tell your girlfriend about it. You know, you're not going to get admirated. You're going to get it. What are you thinking? You gave up a half a million dollars a year to go. So these, this is the, this is the difficult, you know, yes, there's many different, and it's fear. It's fear of, of, of people not liking you, of people not understanding, of, be, of becoming isolated, of, of, um, of, of maybe blowing up your career or whatever. Um, so the most important thing that you work on when you work on your personal development is courage. <laughs> Um, yeah. and, to, and so, and I always say, I'm actually working with a couple of, uh, with a, a business school right now on this is that what 80% of whether you're going to be successful or not in business or in any other area of your life depends not on your skills, not on how smart you are, not how well you can jockey a spreadsheet, but how, but, but your character traits, are you an authentic person? Can you show vulnerability? Can you be honest? Can you be honest with yourself? Can you be honest with other people? Uh, do you do you keep your promises? Do you, um, you know, all these things that we don't learn in school? Yeah, no, that's huge. I think that even like leadership is not taught, and and all all of that is in leadership um, is that's never taught in school. You get all the. like I went to business school and uh, you get all the different SWOT analysis and uh, all that, but you, you don't get the core stuff that makes you a better person. Um, Well, you know, it's interesting you're bringing that up because, and this is what I work at with the coaching that I, that I do and the people that I worked with in my businesses. And this is by core to the book that I wrote. And this is one of the things I learned from the monks you don't learn leadership. You become a leader. Mm-hmm. You can't read a book about golf and then go out and hit and, and shoot par. I sure can't. <laughs> you, you, you become, you go, you start out as somebody who's trying to play golf and you gradually become a golfer. Mm-hmm. And I used to take lessons from a pro who was actually played on the PGA tour. And I'd hear him talking about uh, other people that I didn't know. And he said, Oh yeah, I know Jimmy. He's a player. And I used to think to myself, well, I hope one day he'll be able to say that about me, which he never was. <laughs> I never got that good. But that's when you've become. And so, you know, Aristotle said, you are, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence is not a choice. Excellence is a habit. You become a leader by, 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 by developing your character, by doing things over and over and over again until they become second nature. Yeah. No, absolutely. That was one of Lou Mobley's great discoveries at the IBM Executive School. And that's why he fired all the business school professors that he had hired previously because they were failing. He said, you only become through experience, not through not through intellectual knowledge. So he he turned the whole IBM Executive School into 12 weeks of experiential learning. There were no classes, there were no books, there were no lectures, there were no tests. It was simulations, it was games, it was uh, 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 things that he would put together to force the people to encounter themselves. And um, and I've, I've been talking, giving a lecture lately where I say, listen, you know, we're, um, what is leadership? What is the task of leadership? You know, first of all, who is the most important? I'll ask you this question. 
who is the most important, as a leader yourself, who is the most important follower you will ever have in your life? Oh, oh dear. Um, probably my dad. He's your follower? <clears throat> ish um <laughs> good i mean I that's fine right that's, that's, that's fine um i would however i would argue that the most important follower that we all have is ourselves yeah the you're not wrong about that the first thing we have to learn is how to lead ourselves and and so then i talk then i come back and i say to people okay now what do leaders do what is the job one of leadership what is the most important thing a leader does the most important thing a leader does is he 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 provides he articulates a vision or a mission of higher purpose and higher meaning for other people he and lou Mobley used to say the number one job of leadership is to answer the question what is the business of the business why are we here? Why, what are we doing? What's the purpose of the, why do we all come together? What's the business of the business? And it's the big why question. And that's what the greatest leaders do. I just came from an incredible conference at a company that I used to work with called Yex Corporation, which is when I worked with them in 2009, it was run, started by a couple of 25 year old former students of mine from Duke in a one room in, in Columbus Circle in New York City. And now they're building their own building. They're building their own building and um, they're a multi-billion dollar public company. And they have this, and it's always because Howard Lerman had this great vision and he's able to inspire people to forget about their little petty concerns and throw themselves in, hammer and tongs, heart and soul, into, our, into realizing the X, this company's called Yex. This is what leaders do. And I keep telling people, if, what is you, okay, if, you're, if you're, you are the most important follower that you have, what is your purpose? What is your vision? When you ask the question, what is the business of the business? That's only, that is just saying, who are we? But when you think of yourself as, a, as your own follower, you're, the answer then becomes, what's the business of my business? Who am I? Why am I on the planet? What am I doing with my life? What is my big picture, higher purpose beyond just getting up and going to work tomorrow morning mm -hmm. or meeting my friends on, on Friday night for a few beers? What am, why am I on the planet? And again, the big challenge here a lot of times is fear. I don't want to think too much about that. I don't want to think too much about those, the big picture. Yeah. I was reading, I was reading an article in the in New York Times years ago about this Mepkin Abbey, this place, this Trappist monastery, which keeps silence and where I go all the time. And all the people being interviewed, the visitors said, how wonderful and beautiful it is. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous, beautiful place. I, I recommend anybody go there. Um, but, and it's quiet and it's serene and all this stuff. And this one businessman said, he said, yeah, it's quiet and it's serene and it's beautiful and all that stuff, peaceful. He said, but let me tell you something. When you have nothing better to do but to sit on a park bench overlooking the Cooper River for hours on time, all, hours on end, all by yourself, you find yourself thinking about things you might rather not think about. Mm -hmm. You start asking yourself about your life, and who you are, and what you're trying to do. And to me, if you want to be this authentic human being, if you want to be a great leader, if you want to be all these other things, then you have to face that fear and go into that. Uh, into the fiery furnace if necessary and say, why am I here? What is my purpose? 
And then you have to live it out. It's, it's one thing to be like some corporate executive who writes this lofty mission statement down and then sticks it in a drawer and never looks at it again. Yeah. And that's typically what we do with our lives. We all get together in a nice coffee clatch or something. We go around the circle. What is their mission in life? Well, my mission is to save world peace, save the whales, you know. But when you follow up a week later, you know, what have you done to save the whales? Don't save the whales. <laughs> I haven't done a darn thing to save the whales. Uh, so anyway, I'm blabbing on and on and on. I hope some of this makes sense. No, absolutely. That's, I completely agree with that. You have to dig deeper into yourself to figure out how to, how to navigate life and how to be authentic to you. And when you do that, you, you, you start to change you become a different person you go through what mobley called a revolution in consciousness and other people pick up on this mm -hmm. absolutely other people pick up on this and i said uh, one of the chapters in my my book business secrets of the travis monk i said you become what i call a corporate um, uh, statesman and i said a corporate statesman is the person that everybody no matter what position you might held. Um, of course, Lou Bobby used to always say every organization has its formal and its informal uh, organization. So a lot of times, if you want to know who the leaders are, it's, it's not on the org chart. It's, it's who people are following. Check out who the people are following and then you'll find the leaders. But I said, who are the best leaders are the, are the, what I call the corporate statesmen. So let's just, just assume that you're this vice president of sales. You have to project the, the image and be authentic about it, that you're actually in, uh, you're not just here to advocate for sales. You're not going to come up with phony baloney arguments to justify doing something for sales that's going to negatively impact some other organization. And when you can, and when everybody believes that you are absolutely, uh, uh, you know, a statesman who is in it, who cares the most about everybody being successful and the whole company being successful, then people begin to turn to you for advice just instinctively. People from other departments, because they, I'll give you an example. When I was at Yex Corporation, um, uh, uh, they were plotting out the new office they were having and the vice president of sales came to me and I was a consultant. And the vice president of sales came to me one day and he said, you know, the new, the new plan doesn't have me having an office. The new plan has me just being, having a cube in the middle of all the salespeople and everything. He said, um, I, he said, part of me says, well, maybe that makes sense. And part of me thinks maybe I'm being dissed <laughs> because the other executives are getting, are all getting office. He said, what do you think? And uh, it doesn't matter what I think. I gave him what I thought, which, but the point to me was he knew full well that the, that I was the CEO's right-hand man. Uh, well, that I'd been hired by him, that I had his ear, that I was constantly in, you know, and, um, but he never doubted for a second that I would say, oh, well, you, you know, you should be happy with what they, yeah, there, here's 12 reasons why you should be, you're not being dissed. And then have him walk away thinking, did he really believe that? Or did he just say that because he doesn't want to get in trouble with the CEO? Yeah, for sure. He knew that I would give him my completely objective, honest opinion of the situation, regardless of how the chips might fall somewhere else. And, uh, and I was very flattered that he felt that way about me. And that's what a corporate statesman is like. But, and if you work on yourself to, to if, your if your mission in life is bigger than just being successful in this particular job, you'll end up being more successful in this particular job. 
I always come up with, I keep saying, it's in your own self-interest to forget your self-interest. The more you forget about yourself and dedicate yourself to helping other people, the faster you get ahead. This sounds counterintuitive, but if you think about it, we're talking about leadership here today. <clears throat> um, most people want to be leaders. But when you really ask them why, it's because they want something for themselves out of it. They want the power. They want the prestige. They want the, the money. They want whatever. They want to get promoted. And I keep trying to tell them, listen, your job as a leader is to forget completely about your own career and dedicate yourself fanatically to getting other people promoted. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, guess what? You'll get promoted even faster. Yeah, um, it's about investing in them. Yes, your job as a leader is not to get yourself promoted. It's to get other people promoted. Your job as a salesman is not to get commission. It's to get, help your customer. be. It's not for you to become successful. You're supposed to help your customer be successful. If you help your customer be successful, you'll make a lot of sales. It's the trailing indicator. It's the byproduct. And when corporations worry um, uh, fanatically about helping their customers and forget about profits, they make even more profits. Yeah. This is the, it's in your own self-interest to forget your self-interest. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's serving others instead of serving yourself. And it, and it, the paradox is that you end up, you know, I, uh, you know, I've been extremely blessed financially. I'm, you know, extremely blessed, but it was, not, but even my father and he wasn't saying it as a, as a, as a, as a, uh, <laughs> as a compliment because my dad came out of the depression and, and money was everything to my old man. But he used to say, he don't care anything about money. He never cares about money. And I even said in my book, I said, the, more, the less I care, worry about money, the more money I make. And that's what I learned from the, mon the monks. I said, the monks are not successful. They're very successful in business. Anything these Trappist monks talk, touch, uh, turns to money. That's why I wrote this business secrets of the Trappist monks book. Because I was hanging out with them. And I thought, my God, every these guys are 65. They don't, average age, they don't, they work four hours a day. They work in silence. They don't care about money. They don't care about business at all. I don't think they could spell the word, yet everything they touch turns to money. So how, how do they do that? And I said, it's, you know, uh, Trappist monks are not successful despite the fact um, uh, that, that, they are, that they put God and other people and, and uh, higher values first. They're successful because they do. Yeah. You know, and uh, people love them and they love their products and they trust them and all these other good things that corporations are all trying to establish. And they do it because they don't, they really don't care about the, the business is not the most important thing to them. Yeah, that's so important. Yeah. Well, do you have anything else that you'd like to share? Um, otherwise, if not, where can people find you? Um, well, I'm in. A, I'm actually living incommunicado, uh, and, and you know, I'm just kidding. Uh, the best way to uh, to learn more about me, if you're if you uh, are so inclined, is uh, I have a website, augustturak.com. It's August like the month. Turak, T is in Tom. U R A K. It's one word. Augustturak.com. Also, I write um, for Forbes magazine as a contributor for Forbes on leadership. So if you just plunk in, go to Forbes.com and plunk 
Again, August Turak, you'll find all of my ramblings and um, about leadership and a lot of the issues that we're talking. And I would also suggest, you know, you can find Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks on Amazon or all, or Brother John on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or any place. Yeah, we'll put those in the um, episode notes so people can find those pretty easily. All right. Well, do you have anything else you'd like to share? Well, do I have anything else that I would like to share? You know, well, I'm a little concerned that the Carolina Hurricanes have now dropped three games in a row <laughs> to their divisional rivals, although they did bring, beat the Red Wings a couple of weeks ago. Um, sure. <laughs> so, no, I wouldn't say I have anything, uh, you know, else is that uh, just, uh, as I say, it's in your own self-interest to forget your self-interest and make your spiritual life the center of your life and everything else is going to take care of itself. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, August. We really appreciated all of your, uh, your knowledge and inspiration. It's been a blast to be able to talk to you. I've enjoyed it very much, Kirsten. God bless. Yes, you too. All right. So we'll cut it there. You did great. I don't think that we'll have anything to cut out. You're, you're, do, you do this. So, um, but yeah, so I will send you an email when we push this out. And then we also make this little it's like marketing essentially for, um, for our, our brand page. Um, and we'll push that out and we'll tag you and all of that. Um, yeah, but do you have any other questions for me? No. Who do you, who do you push it out to? Um, for LinkedIn followers. <laughs> They're, uh, almost all of them are SMB, um, small and medium sized businesses, CEOs, um, and then it's a lot of nonprofits. So me and my boss, boss Mike, both push it out. He has more of nonprofits. I have more business coaches. Our brand has more of the small business um, leaders. So yeah, that's what we pushed it out to. But you can also, I can also send it to you and you can push it out. So Yes, I would definitely do that. Just send it. You have my email address. You can send yeah, it to us and we'll put it out in our our social media um, stuff and um, be happy to do that. Awesome. awesome. Very, very cool. Yeah. Could I possibly show you a demo of our product sometime to get some feedback on it? Well, yeah, um, well, not today. Okay. Yeah. No, not today. I don't have time. Uh, yeah. You could, you, you, you could do that. Um, uh, I'm not in a position. I want to be clear with you because mm -hmm. I'm, uh, I'm not in a, I don't do a lot of, I'm not doing a lot of business these days. Okay. So I'm not in a, posi a position to recommend if I, even if I love the product, there's no use. I have no particular use for it. Okay. And I'm not doing a lot of, um, um, you know, strictly business kind of things anymore. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm into my, into my, as a matter of fact, the next book I want to write is going to be strictly spiritual and I'm not okay. going to even <clears throat> talk about business. Um, so I don't want to oversell the possibilities of what I might be able to do for you. Yeah, I guess I'm... it would just be more of a feedback. That's what we've been asking from the people that we've been doing podcasts with. It'll be 20, 30 minutes, maybe. Um, and yeah, I mean, we could, yeah. I, I would be, I'd be happy to, I would be happy to do that for you only because okay. you're a cool girl. <laughs> Thank uh, you. And, uh, did you say, you said you spent a couple summers in New York, New yeah. York city you're talking about? So kind of both. My grandparents live in New York, so I'm there twice a year, if not more. Um, so a few of my best friends live out there too. Um, and then, so I worked at a camp in upstate New York, actually, but uh, I grew up around New York City constantly. So yeah, um, it's yeah. I used to live. I used to live in New York myself. So where? 
I lived first on West 82nd and Broadway when okay. I first moved to New York. And then I eventually uh, lived on New York's fashionable Upper East Side. Mm -hmm. So I lived on 77th in New York. Um, okay. in the, in this, and that's when I worked with MTV. And I was also one of the founders of what's now the A&E Network. So oh, okay. I, I cool. did when I was in New York. Yeah, that's awesome. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, no. Yeah, I, I tell everybody, I said, you should, every, every 28-year-old man single should be have a chance to be single living in new york city working for mtv when it's first starting out with an unlimited expense account <laughs> I, I mean it's like it's lucky you can survive it the hard part is surviving it you know, we had know. so much we had so much fun i'm surprised i'm still here but uh it was a, it was a great time i loved new york yeah, I was just there last. I was just there last week and the week before, so I've been there twice. In a fun place. I love it too. I worked at a camp in upstate New York, um, in Speculator. It's a super small town, um, but yeah, it was like I would just. What was the cool kind of summer camp? Was it? Um, so it was a family summer camp. I did. I was like a rec leader essentially, so I just brought people on hikes and canoe trips and all that. It was so fun. I mean, I got paid. A dime a day kind of thing but it was a blast and what do you mean by family camp what's that mean um so basically it's a spiritual camp biblical based um and so they bring in big speakers like ravi zacharias um I'm trying to think of the other ones there's a few big names that come in and uh, so it's like evangelical christian yep yep, oh. yep Protestant, that type of group um and then basically they they bring in all these speakers, families, younger families, older families. They have all these different cabins. The place is like a three-mile radius, essentially. Yeah, yeah. We, we uh, there's a, there's my a woman who works with me. Actually, she's my <laughs> she's more my boss. I pay her, but she's my boss, uh, Melissa. She runs. I have a nonprofit corporation, so everything I do, all the book sales, all my lecturing, coaching, anything I do is goes to the nonprofit. So. Um, I don't take any money from what I consider my spiritual work. And anyway, Melissa is, um, she's very, um, she's Protestant and she's involved in a summer camp, like just like that, not too far from here. And oh, uh, cool. she's, um, she works there. And last, last year we actually had an intern, a girl that I met when I was in London. Uh, it's a long story, but anyway, I met her in London and she ended up getting interested in, she, uh, so we, she spent the summer at that camp. Um, That's cool. As an, as an intern doing doing stuff there so um yeah as a matter of fact you probably know who rick warren is then don't you the name is very familiar rick warren wrote, wrote, wrote a book called the purpose driven life yeah. uh he's an evangelical evangelical minister and he's it sold 35 million copies and um yeah i think i know what you're talking about i don't know if i've read his book directly but um but I've definitely heard about, I went to a Protestant Christian college. So, um, he, uh, he, uh, he was one of the four, uh, he's so anyway, he was also the minister who inaugurated, uh, Barack Obama. He was the yeah. minister at Barack Obama's inauguration. And he was one of the four judges that gave me the brother John, the hundred thousand dollar, um, Templeton prize. So we're doing some advertising right now for my book, brother John, and we're using a quote from, from Rick Warren, um, uh, to, uh, to sell it but uh oh great that's that's fascinating yeah uh, good good stuff yeah no anyway. all right so we'll be in touch um i can just send you a calendar link to uh show you my stuff and it'll be a quick a quick easy and it's only for feedback i'm not going to try and sell you on anything um but yeah so 
I'll send that over to you. And you're welcome to try and sell me some. I was just trying to set you. I'm I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to try and sell it to you, but I'm, if, I, I'm yeah. an old sale. I'm an old salesman. I came. I was actually on the cover of Selling Magazine one time. Uh, we we used to say before. We was, what's that? If you see a fit for anyone, go ahead and reference them, and we I said, will uh, to them and sell it to them. <laughs> we always say we leave the women crying and the men signing checks. <laughs> <laughs> Always be closing A B C. But anyway, so it'll be a quick, brief. Um, it's pretty short, very simple okay. product. But it's we think it's something that's. Uh, How's it selling? Um. So it, we just actually a story behind that. Um, my boss started it about two years ago. Um, he developed it, got customers, and then um, the business on our more developing side for other companies and consulting got really large. So we kind of stopped developing it. It was hard to keep up with. Um, but then recently, so I actually just graduated college uh, not even six months ago. Um, and so my capstone project was through this company. And so I just reached out one day and was like, hey, would you hire me on? Um, I know it's a long shot, but I'm not getting any leads. They're like, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and Griffins are losing, so I need a job. <laughs> yeah, so basically, um, yeah, we kind of just restarted when I started um, about a year ago-ish with this project. And ever since then, I've been an intern and then I got hired on. So it's in its very early stages. It's in its infancy. That's a um, tough, that's a tough, tough, tough. Did I say tough? Tough business, I think. I mean, uh, um, any... Um, Anything that tries to take a something as intangible as leadership and trying to put it into a software. I mean, I wish you luck. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, so I'm, I'll be interested to see what you have. Um, but it's uh, you know really it, it really is. tough, and it's tough to marketing even if you have the greatest product in the world. I mean, finding that finding the customers for it and um, convincing them to 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 buy it is such I a crowded market. It's tough because people um, see the money signs and like our product's not big, but they see that they kind of what we just talked about in your, in your podcast, they see the money signs. They don't see investing in people as saving you money and time and creating that um, value. But so it's kind of almost like shifting them to, be able to see that. Well, the, the important, most important, you know, I always, you know, thing is there's two, there's two keys to sales. In my opinion, one is, you know, this is nothing new. One is, so what and says who you got to answer the question so what and says who and the uh the so what part is you've got to be able to demonstrate um through case studies the what productivity whatever it is that you know mm -hmm. something that business people care about yeah um something that's measurable something that you can show that a, a lift in morale or a, or that or productivity or something like that. And the other thing is you need the so the, the says who. In other words, you could say it's the greatest product in the world, and I'm going to say, yeah, you're paid to say that. But if you get Barack Obama to say it's the greatest product in the world and he wouldn't have been able to run the country for eight years without it, then that means something to me because yeah. ostensibly, hopefully you're not paying him to say that. Yeah, no, so those are the two most critically important things. Um, and in sales, you know, the hardest thing to teach a salesman is to not sell features, but to sell benefits. And I remember the very first sales job I ever had was um, selling copy machines. And, um, and they said, okay, we now we're introducing a, you know, your, 
a copy machine that you know used to do 20 copies a minute now it does 100 copies a minute if you tell your client hey i got a product now that instead of doing 20 copies a minute now does 100 copies a minute i said that's just a feature he's sitting there saying so what your job is to say as a result of this your secretary is not going to be standing in front of the you know if she stands in front of the if every copy means 30 seconds and she stands in front you know 100 blah 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 this is how much money you're saving every day because she's not standing in front of the copy machine because it can do so much faster copying and if you average that out over 12 months you can see that you actually pay for this copy machine in six months and after that it all falls to the bottom line that's a benefit and the vast majority of salespeople don't carry it through. They allow the customer or the, or the prospect to fill in, supposedly, um, what the benefit is going to be. Um, and I, and I, I say this because not only was I in sales for many, many years, but then I became CEO of my own company or became a, a corporate executive. And then it was my turn to have vendors and try to sell me stuff. And it was just... Kirsten, it was so depressing. So I, I, I would want to say, listen, I'll tell you what, why don't we stop right here? You take my seat and I'm going to take your seat and I'm going to show you how, what you should be doing to sell me Yeah. and what you're not doing. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, last thing I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story that happened so many times, you know, I was, I'd want to have a, <laughs> I was cruel, but it, you have to be cruel to be kind, you know, as Shakespeare says. So these, I'm tr I want, a, I want a, a, a new phone system for my company, right? So this guy comes in to sell me a new phone system. And the first thing he does is he hands me a brochure with all of his phone systems, all of his options, all of the things that his phone system, phone systems could do. To, and I, and I, and this happened. 12 times. It happened when a banker came in and how people hand me a brochure. I would take the brochure and I would go like this and I would drop it in the waste paper basket. And they would look at yeah. me with big eyes and I said, I don't want to learn about your business. I don't want to know everything your phone system does. I don't want to turn me into a phone system expert. I want you to learn my business and then tell me of all the 500 things that are in that brochure, what are the four or six or 12 things that apply to my business? Yeah. You're supposed to do that work. You're asking me to do your job. I got to learn your business, which is phones. And then I got to figure out how to apply your business to my business. Yeah. No. Because you're too damn lazy to want to know how my business works. And I, I believe me, I had, I, I filled up dumpsters with, with brochures that way. I mean, um, no, I would retrieve it and give it back to her. But, you know, it, it was so, so depressing. So my, uh, yeah. you know, my advice to you is don't make that mistake as you go forward. All right. Well, thank you very much. And uh, no charge for that, that, that sales pointer there. <laughs> No, I will. Thank you very much. But I, you got the when I next time I get to Grand Rapids, you got to take me to a Griffins game, though. Oh, absolutely. We can totally make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to do that, as a matter of fact. Oh. All right. All right. Well, we're, I we're kind of hockey fan. We're, we're, we're kind of hockey fans down here. That's okay. I, oh, so my hair cutter, her, all of her 
girls, I guess they played on boys hockey teams. So I heard about hockey all the time. I still do. Um, but yeah, I, if I got the opportunity when I was younger, I totally would have played. I think I would have been so good at it. I can't, I can't even ice skate, but I live with a brother. I live with my brother. I've never married and I, I live with my brother and, uh, he's never married and, uh, he is an absolute fanatic. I mean, he is an absolute fanatic, you know, he's got season tickets and, and, uh, and we got the center ice package on the cable and, and, uh, and his dream is, uh, um, what he loves to do is he loves to go, uh, to other cities. It's, he's a Carolina Hurricanes fanatic. Uh-huh. Um, and I always tease him though, because of the Carolina Hurricanes are, we're from Pittsburgh originally. Oh, so okay. if, the, if the, if the Carolina Hurricanes are too, too bad, then he always falls back on the Pittsburgh Penguins suddenly become we, I said, how do they become we? You know, you were, you were rooting for the, I thought the Carolina Hurricanes were we now all of a sudden, because they're not in the playoffs, the Penguins suddenly become we, but he likes to go to uh, other cities and see um, games um, in other cities. Uh, actually, it's funny because the last thing I'll tell you is that the, uh, my boss, when I was starting out the, what's now the A&E network, he was the chief operating officer of the company and he went on to become head of Madison Square Garden. Mm. And now he is, then eventually he was the president of this, of uh, the San Antonio Spurs. And then in 1990 or something like that, he was the first president of the Nashville Predators hockey team. And he ran them until 2014. And I happened to be in Nashville a few months ago for a trade show. And I just, I hadn't seen him in all those years. I hadn't seen him since 1985, but, uh, uh, we got together, had a wonderful lunch together, and uh, he had all this. Na- he's retired now, but he has all this Nashville Predator gear on. I said, "Hey, how about if me and my brother come back down to see a Predators game?" You know, he said, "Oh yeah, we'll do that." You know, because my brother loves to go to these other cities and see games. It's fun. I do, I do that all the time. Yeah. All right. Take care and God bless. Okay. All right. I will see you later. Bye bye. This podcast is proudly produced by Waypoint. What is Waypoint? Well, if you want to coach your team and not manage them then Waypoint is worth checking out. Head over to waypointhq.com to learn more or email me directly, mike at waypointhq.com, and I'll demo it for you myself. Thanks for listening.